I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. This episode features writer, speaker, and architect Peter Panoyer. We're talking about classic architecture from a French modern townhouse to a rural farmhouse, a log cabin in the Adirondacks, and so much more. That is a broad stretch. So much to talk about. We are two weeks into 2022, and dealing with Omicron, the the next variant of this seemingly endless pandemic, I, I only bring it up, not to tell you what you already know, that this sucks, but because architecture and design are just as important to getting through this as vaccines and protective procedures. This is not a political statement, but one of empirical data. Interior designers are making our homes more functional, and architects are crafting new concepts into homes of today to address these issues when something like this happens again. And look, chances are it will. And know that the work that designers and architects are putting into practice today are things that are going to help us greatly when they do. Peter Penoyer is the founder of his namesake firm, Peter Penoyer Architects, and Peter is president of the Whiting Foundation, a nonprofit that supports scholars and writers. He served on the board of the Institute of Classical Architecture, and his formal training in past architecture has influenced how he crafts for the future. Peter's been recognized and awarded far too many times to mention them here. Awards follow the work as form follows function. We discuss more about that and review some projects over the next hour. Enjoy this conversation with architect Peter Penoyer. Before we get to Peter, if you listened to last week's episode, you know I made a very special announcement. Convo by Design presents the 2022 Remote Design House Tulsa, a unique idea around an equally unique show house. I have been wanting to do another design house project for many years now, but the right opportunity just hadn't presented itself. Sure, there were projects, but none were right for me. Then the pandemic hit. Here I was producing a podcast for eight years, and all of a sudden the entire industry stops working in an, in an office and trying to figure out what the future of design is, even what it's even going to look like. I'm going to go a a bit farther down the rabbit hole in future episodes, but right now I want to tell you where this is all going. In the first 200 days of the pandemic, I recorded over 100 interviews, conversations and panels. Like you probably did, I dived into the work for two reasons. The first was to keep myself from going crazy with a family of four in a small house, trying to keep everyone calm and not lose my cool in the face of something scary and unknown. The second part was a strong belief at the time that our industry was on the precipice of something amazing. I had no idea that the product would be in short supply until the summer of 2020 and beyond. I was, I was on a run in Manhattan Beach, California one day. Unable to run along the strand, I was forced onto a neighboring alley and I noticed all of the boxes waiting for trash pickup. I started counting and identifying the boxes, which became sort of a hobby and a way of passing the miles, to be honest with you, while running through mostly empty streets and alleys. The boxes, they were TVs, appliances, office furniture and equipment. There were fitness equipment boxes and all kinds of design materials and products. I remember the aha moment 
for me was later in the fall, I had completed recording and airing a, seri- a series called Designing for Disaster. You can still find these episodes in the, in the Convo by Design stream. Designers, architects were telling me that of their clients, the ones that could were escaping to Mountain Beach and more remote locations to live this out and using the opportunity to remodel both homes at the time. Designers and architects, you know this, you have been extremely busy ever since. Part of this new professional reality meant that embracing the new technology like Zoom, Slack, Basecamp, Microsoft Office, and Google Drive was now a mandatory part of all of our jobs, especially designers and architects. This also meant that they would be required to design from a distance. That is something that represents the most revolutionary element for the design trade. How can you continue to work with your clients now on the move and do what you do, which traditionally was almost all in person and face-to-face? I wanted to find out. And so here we are in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with a really special project house that is going to be reimagined by some of the world's most talented creatives, none of whom are from Tulsa. This house is real, and the design is completely remote. The meetings are all virtual, and the work is being completed locally by local craftsmen, artisans, and tradesmen. I haven't seen a project like this before, so I really don't have anything with which to compare it. So we're going to learn together. Episodes featuring the designers and the design partners are coming soon. Speaking of amazing partners, Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger a progressive brand that was built on a promise to provide designers, architects, and homeowners with the right materials to do their best work. That promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But it's more than that. Walker Zanger believes strongly in serving the trade with a trade program that makes the specifying process simple and easy with the support you need. They have been staunch supporters of the trade since 1952. In 2020, I launched a partnership series with Walker Zanger called The Showroom. These intimate interview series conversations showcase some of the best creatives in the business. And if you want to check them out, please go back through the podcast catalog and find any episode entitled The Showroom so you can hear these amazing conversations. And if you haven't stopped by a Walker Zanger showroom lately, you're missing out and you need to go check them out. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can possibly imagine or create. So check out any of their showrooms across the country or shop online. WalkerZanger.com. I was really, look, anytime I get to speak to an architect like you, I, I get a little giddy. I get a little excited. Um, yeah. I, I love your work and I wanted, one of the things that, you know, in over eight years of, of doing the podcast and hundreds of interviews, I have found that the origin story is something that I'm asked about most often. It's like, well, how did they get there? Mm-hmm. Not where, you know, it's funny cause we'll talk about the work and we're going to talk about where you are now but every journey is different and i love i love the origin stories so i'm curious you know i can read the bio 
but I want to, I want to hear from you. How did, how did you get there? Yeah. So I felt like architecture was always <clears throat> in my blood. I always felt like it was design was where I was at. And as I grew up in New York city and uh, a lot of influences, our next door neighbor was an architect. And I thought, that he had the coolest house because it was an old Victorian townhouse, but he'd added a kind of modern duplex penthouse on the roof. It's almost like Le Corbusier visited mid Midtown Manhattan, you know, and this was in the sixties and New York was really gray then. I mean, it was not a, you know, it was dusty and dirty and dangerous. So to have this kind of glistening white modernist penthouse next door, was kind of amazing. And, um, and my, you know, my family was involved. My father was on the art commission, which is now called the design review commission. So he would come back from the hearings and he'd always bring these handout packets of drawings for projects, you know, a new school building, um, you know, some statue in the park. Uh, so I was able to see, you know, sort of this interaction between, you know, someone living in the city who cared about design and these buildings and how it might change and improve the city. So a lot of it had to do with seeing uh, New York um, and, and getting to love the streets and, and seeing how, uh, you know, architecture was, was changing things, um, you know, for the better. Uh, I used to go around the Metropolitan Museum of Art while the new wings were under construction. And, you know, they may not be my favorite kind of architecture now, but it was exciting to see, um, you know, and all that inspired me. Backing up a second, it's it's really interesting for me to to talk to creatives of all types, any kind of artist, designer, architect, any type of creative who grew up in a city that is is so unique and interesting. I, I think that we can learn so much from from cities and urban planning, and especially when you talk about a city that grows and has this, this organic life all of its own. And, you know, New York, New York City is definitely one of those. I grew up in LA and LA to me has always been like, I've, I've loved being a native Angelino because, you know, this is where people came to reinvent themselves. New York is where people went to test themselves. You know, it's the old adage from the song, right? right. If you can make it right. there, you can make it anywhere. And it's true. And the reason why is because, in my opinion, is it changes so quickly. And it, it, it grows and it moves in real time, like a real living, breathing animal. And because of that, I, I love how something like that inspires you. What did you take, what did you take from that growing up there as you, as you started your own firm? Well, I think, you know, one lesson is that I became more interested in buildings as parts of streets, as opposed to buildings as individual monuments, you know, as, as standalone architecture. I thought it was much more compelling to find a beautiful street with, you know, 10 houses that had been designed in the 1840s. And then some of them had been modified into the 1920s but they all fit together and, and made this sort of streetscape and place and neighborhood. And so I felt, I felt traditional architecture and historic architecture had much more to, to tell me than buildings that were shiny and glass and metal and sort of stood out, stood aloof from where they were. 
Um, so I found that I was, I found like I was a student and an architect because everywhere we worked, I was learning about what made that place feel like it did and what was special to that place. Instead of coming in and deciding that I was a genius and I was gonna impose some brilliant new vision. <laughs> uh, and it was confusing at the beginning because people would look at our portfolio of my office and they wouldn't see a consistent you know, style. And so they sort of say, well, you did that. You did, a, you, know, you did this Gothic thing and then you did this classical thing. And so, um, but always it was about the city and, and you know, making pieces of even building in the country and building country houses, making things that felt organically like they belonged there and they were inevitable and they weren't kind of imposed on the landscape. Um, and when I was in seventh grade, the houses at the end of my block were all torn down um, and a really monstrous concrete apartment house was put up. Um, which of course blocked the east light, which is sort of disappointing. But I mean, it was going to happen. Um, but I decided to write an essay and I'd forgotten I'd written about it, right? So my grade school republished this last year <laughs> in my seventh grade essay comparing the Plaza Hotel to this apartment tower on Third Avenue. <laughs> so wait a minute, this is a seventh grade essay making yes, seventh this comparison? Seventh grade essay. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm curious, as you as you go back and you reread this for the first time since you've forgotten it so many years ago, um, was it cringy or did you look at it and you say, those are some really salient points, good ideas? I mean, I think I was trying to organize myself. So it wasn't, what was, yeah, I, yes, it's cringy to look at that and you go, oh my God, I was an unbearable <laughs> nerd. <laughs> like, no wonder, uh, you know, so yeah. But, but I mean, I was looking at the building and counting the parts. So it wasn't like I was inventing anything genius. I was just sort of saying, well, this one has a turrets and it has a sloped roof and it has all these beautiful moldings. And the other one has concrete. <laughs> Along those lines, you know, the, the difference between something, something beautiful and ornate or something like, you know, a, a brutalist structure, you know, different people look at things different ways. And I'm, I'm curious because New York city is one of, is one of those environments where there are protections um, unfortunately, so many years went by where there were no protections and it was just Katie bar the door. I mean, um, look at what they did. What was it? Was it Penn station where they just sort yeah. of, what am I looking at here? You know? Um, and there are other structures around the city, certainly that didn't make it that one today would look at and say, that is, that was such a significant building. You know, how could you tear that down? I'm curious, where do, you, where do you draw the line? Because we certainly have similar issues in Southern California, California in general, um, because of architectural, you know, the Googies are, are always a big topic of conversation in Southern California, because, you know, it's like, well, it's kind of quirky, but is it relevant to architecture? Is it significant? Many would argue, yeah, it really is, but they get torn down anyway. Where do you draw the line between something that is significant as it relates to architecture and something that is, I don't know, call it suitable for replacement. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm not, I would be much more um, particular about newer buildings or buildings that are only 50 years old um, being landmarked um, because I think that there's a feeling that uh, preservationists are worried about seeming like they're old fashioned and boring and um, not interested in, in, in art and contemporary culture. So there's a, a tendency to like over protect relatively new buildings. And I even think some old buildings aren't worth protecting. I think there's a lot of dangerous uh, sort of division of, of taste and, and uh, you know, rules and preservation. And, and so I think we should be much more open-minded. I mean, a lot of the architecture, a lot of the townhouses in New York have changed um, you know, twice and, and, and they're totally unrecognizable, but they make up kind of beautiful streetscape in their variety. So I'm not a big proponent of freezing things. And I'm also not a big, I, I, I think it's really important to let architects and designers operate within reasonable latitude when they work on an old building. Like, I don't think you have to be scientifically bound to only, you know, put in a window. It was exactly the window that was there. I think that we need to have some creativity or else things feel, you know, kind of dead. So you started the firm in 1990. Yes. Miami and New York City. Right. Two, two cities that <laughs> coming out of the 80s did, did not fare well coming yeah. out of the 1980s, did not look good coming out of the 1980s. Two cities that are very similar in nature, you know, as far as, how the the architecture that you talk about New York City and Manhattan being being dirty and dark and dingy and not a you know not a happy vibrant artistic place, so true. Um, Miami, on the other side of that, was just this explosion of nineteen eighties excess in right. greens and pinks, and you yeah. you've got the Art Deco versus the new modern Mediterranean mansions. I mean, it was just an absolute mess. And I'm trying to put myself in, in your mindset, a creative and an architect looking at these two, your two, you know, adopted home cities. One is a real home city. One's an adopted home city in Miami. And you're, this is where you chose to work. What goes through your mind at this point? Did you, and I guess, did you know what you wanted to do creatively or did you learn along the way? I mean, I think I learned along the way, honestly. And I think I react to every commission on its own terms and try to, you know, just do my best. I mean, you know, sometimes it's like you muddle through, but no, I mean, I didn't come with a mission. Um, and I thought that was terrific. The Miami architecture actually of Architectonica back in the day, you know, the, the pink house that belonged to family friends and you know, that you'd approach this pink house and there was a big round window and it was actually a porthole into the pool. You know, it, 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 they designed these uh, apartment blocks and they just take out a chunk of it and put a palm tree up there on the 11th floor. Um, so there was a kind of spirit and liberation in Miami that you'd never achieve uh, in New York. You are listening to my conversation with Peter Penoyer. We will return to that in just a moment. So listen, wallpapers having a moment a well-deserved moment that is allowing designers to craft and create in new and amazing ways. Convo by Design has a new partner this year. 
This partnership includes participation in our Remote Design House Tulsa project, of which you will be hearing a lot about this year. I've been working closely with an exclusive group of partners, and I am absolutely thrilled to be working with York Wall Coverings. This company has been crafting exquisite wall coverings for over a century, with an archive that dates back to the early 18th century. This deeply rich history provides inspiration for the future. And the designs available through the York Wall Covering Studio have long been lauded for their authenticity and craftsmanship. This art, artistry, and history combined with a commitment to continually reimagining the manufacturing process allows York Wall Coverings to provide a consistently exquisite product. For options and inspiration, find them online, yorkwallcoverings.com. You can also find their store locator tool online at yorkwallcoverings.com for a location near you. Thank you, York Wall Coverings. Back to my chat with architect Peter Penoyer. I feel like in looking at a lot of your work, I feel like that affected you um, and it affected the work. It influenced it. And, and I'm curious if that was intentional, if you go back, if you recognize that. You mean Miami particularly? Or, or? My, so something you mentioned, just sort of like this, a much freer sense of what's possible and what we can do. You know, you talk about opening up space and putting a palm tree on, you know, on an 11th floor right. and, and just kind of like, and that really does signify Miami um, in that time frame. It's like, hey, you know what, we can do that. I lived in South Florida for yeah. a year. I couldn't take it. I, I had to, I had to get out after a year. Um, but I lived there for a year. And so I understand what you're talking about. And, and it's interesting to me too, because South Florida and Manhattan seem very similar to me. You have European influence, you have South American influence, you have North American influence, you have Asian influence. You basically, anybody that comes there feels this sense of ownership. Like this is my home now and I can make it look and feel the way I want it to. So you get this true melting pot of creativity and, and artistic representation. And that's not the same in other places around the world. And so I, I just, I'm, I'm curious how that sense of freedom, and I, I take it back to my own experience here in Los Angeles, where, you know, people would come in, this is where they want to grow and, and find themselves and, and re reimagine and recreate themselves. So they'll try things and they'll try just incredible. There's some real, there is some really weird architecture in Southern California. I know. And <laughs> it, there really is. Um, and when I say weird, I mean it in the best possible way. But there's also some truly experimental things that have survived, many that haven't. And I, I think that that influence is inescapable. And for someone like you who has built a firm over so many years, I'm curious if that sort of, if those seeds are deep rooted and they just sort of grew within your work. And we're gonna talk about some projects in a, in a little bit, but there's one particular one that I, I noticed in the Adirondacks, which is a, a, traditional, a traditional home in the Adirondacks with just incredibly vibrant colors around the window frames. And the first thing that came to my mind is, you know, this is not something traditionally that you would find there. Right. And so I'm just curious if that's sort of something that goes back to when you first started and how it influenced you. 
I mean, I think it all comes from looking at other people's work and, and having 10,000 books. And because I think there is an incredible variety and inspiration and actually kind of wild ideas that are, that are buried in the history of architecture. And people tend to think of it as stultifying, but I think it actually, you know, sparks your imagination. Um, but I have always been fascinated by places where the style isn't exactly the right style that would fit into the you know, introduction to architectural history class where every building is supposed to be a perfectly crystallized example of its, you know, chronological order and style. So, you know, for example, Prague happens to be one of my favorite cities in the world. Um, and for many reasons, a lot of the buildings there are frankly strange, you know, like there are Gothic, uh, there are Gothic buildings there where the tracery, the pieces of stone that are, you know, normally follow the vaults perfectly kind of in perfect geometry just look like they were thrown up there by, you know, Jackson Pollock and they're sort of hanging off in the air. They're they've turned into expressionist architecture. Um, there are buildings where you normally have an entrance at the middle of the facade and there's a column that's there. There are all these, you know, permutations of things that are very bizarre there and would not fit into an art history class because, you know, you wouldn't want to have the kids see that, it would confuse them. Um, so, uh, but I find that all over. In fact, the red windows of that Adirondack project I found in a house that had been designed by Delano and Aldrich, a firm I wrote about. So, I mean, people have always had, you know, unusual ideas. And I think that classicism is a living language. I mean, it's constantly evolving. Um, the house I'm in now, our house, you know, looks very traditional. People think it's, some people think it's an old Greek revival house. But in the ground floor, on the first floor, there's only one room with a door. That's the room. I mean, I mean, the powder room has a door, but there, you know, the dining room, the living room, the kitchen, the stair all open, and we don't have doors. We just have big curtains between the rooms, so it, it can look, you know, it can look conservative, but it isn't at all. When we first started chatting, you you had mentioned the Corbusier, and I'm curious because, you know. Cabusier was was talking about post you know post pandemic, nineteen eighteen into the Roaring Twenties, talking about this hygienic, clean line, um, this sort of idea of architecture that is a complete throwback, reminiscent of where we are now. Um, we're we're in exactly the same place. Except coming, if coming... you've ever been in an apartment he designed, have you? There's they actually built one of the housing units in full scale with the furniture, yeah, in Paris, and it's terrible. I have not. It's not very humane. It's tiny. <laughs> the walls are paper thin. It's not. I mean, it's an architect imposing his will on people. It's hard. It's it's scary. So I'm not a yeah, fan. Well, of Listen, by the way, I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I feel like the same comparison could be made to Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, yeah. many, most call him an absolute genius, an American artist. Um, yet some people will look at his work and say, you can't, don't force me to live a certain way. You know, yeah. I, I like the way it looks. Let me change it up when someone there just makes it completely impossible to do so. Um, but my point is, here we are literally a hundred years later, um, those ideas coming out of a, of a pandemic that was just disastrous and looking how, at how that changed the manner in which we live and it changed architecture 
from then on, you can see it like, like rings in a tree, right? You can see that that was a, a point of demarcation. And it's interesting to me because I have to, I feel, I feel compelled to ask these questions now when, you know, a year ago, two years ago, when talking to architects, these were not questions I was necessarily asking, but I have to ask now, has this changed the way that you view architecture, the way that, that it affects you and the way that you want it portrayed? Because prior to the pandemic, there were in 1918, the Spanish flu, there were things in homes, you know, that were, that were non-hygienic and non-conducive to, to living the way we, we live now. Something happened that, that changed the way. And because as an architect, you don't design for five, 10, 15, 20 years, you talk about, it's funny because you talk about new at 50 years. That's, that's a different idea. So because you don't design for anything new, when you look at that then, and you look at where we are now, I'm curious, has that changed your perspective? I mean, it's in small ways, like the idea that it's good to have rooms where you can have a zoom and not have people making noise in the back and, and have outdoor spaces and have good ventilation and all that. But all of that stuff I think was happening anyway in architecture. And I think a good, a well-designed building will always find a use in the future, even if it has to be radically repurposed. I mean, e- even buildings that don't seem on the face of it to have, uh, you know, the right DNA. Like if I told you, I saw an apartment where you had to walk through the living room to get to the bedroom and the bathroom is down another hall and you know every room is connected there and the, what's the kitchen doing over there and you know so that sounds terrible so who's going to want to live there well that happens to be one of the most beautiful apartments on the Ile Saint Louis in Paris and it's in a building you know that is so exquisite that people adapt and find a way of living in it or um a, a, an associate in my office I was just on zoom and I, I was admiring the light in his apartment. And he said, oh, well, this was a factory. And so I have a 12 foot ceiling. So I think good buildings are always gonna find a way of being reused. And I don't know that you have to design specifically for you know, for health, but we think about those things. We think about natural materials and, and sort of indoor environment is very, is, has become very, very important. Um, well, I consider, I, I, okay. So backing up a second, you talk about, you know, this Le Corbusier apartment in <clears throat> in Paris with paper thin walls and, you know, not wanting to live that way. And we also talk about open concept, like you're talking about now, the number one thing that I that I have been hearing for the last 10 months is that there has to be a change in the way people think about the op- the open concept. Um, because it's got to change, you know, especially the way things are now. And I do believe that we're, we're entering a new phase in society where the workplace and home, that line between the two are blending like never before. Yes, definitely. And that, and that even without the pandemic, just with zoom and the way we all work on screens, I mean, it's definitely, um, it's definitely changed. Um, and I think being able to have privacy and discretion at home and being able to have, you know, private spaces is really important. Um, and, and, but good planning always, you can always adapt to a good, a good house. One of the things that I wasn't able to do, it's, it's so funny because prior to March of last year, 
most of my interviews, save for a, a handful, you know, every year were all live. You know, we would meet at a showroom and then we would just sort of chat things out. And you know how you sometimes you don't realize what you don't have available to you until you have it available to you. And it's like, oh, my gosh, this completely changes everything. So I, I am still not a complete fan of Zoom only because I, I like being in person. I like that interaction in person. But what this does do, it is ina- it enables us to, to do sort of a micro case study about projects right. that, that you have worked on. And with your permission, um, I'd like to share my screen with you sure. and go to your website. Right. And I, I kind of want to, I, I want to talk through um, some of these, uh, some of your projects. Hang on a second. Wait a second. Here we go. By the way, and this is not a, uh, this is certainly not a seamless process. <laughs> no, it's all, there are always challenges. There mm-hmm. are, but I do love the way, um, I do love the way it gives us the opportunity to do this. Okay, so you can you can see your uh, your home in the Adirondacks. There we are. So this is the one um, that I was that I was talking about. I I love this. Um, will you? This is the the house in Long Barn in the Adirondacks. Will you tell me sort of where you came into this project and um, how it came to be what it is? So it's, it's uh, set on 22,000 acres that's shared by six families. And so all the houses are clustered around these lakes. And then you have endless miles. I mean, actually, you know, there are bears out there. So I'd always kind of look around before I <clears throat> stepped out the door. But it's very, it's very rustic, very remote. And so the material is being extremely rustic. The logs, the siding is cut from boards that aren't trimmed. So the bark is still on the edges of the boards. And then, but the whole thing becomes, I think, quite possibly gloomy. So the red is supposed to pop away from that kind of deep woods uh, gloom <laughs> and, and give it a little bit of life. I feel like you have, you have masterfully blended modern, traditional, contemporary, and rustic all at the same time. Thank you. Was that, was that the intent? Um, yeah, I, I mean, the intent was to do something that felt like it belonged in the Adirondacks. And I think there's always been that uh, sort of Eastern influence in design at houses there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I was trying to keep it very abstract. The columns are actually posts. Um, I mean, they had a collection of, of big, you know, like military vehicles and different things. So I had to make a huge barn and there's a bunk room and there's a caretaker's house. And, but you have to be able to drive the fire truck through, right? In case there's a fire. <laughs> of course. You, wait, 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 wait. The, you have to drive the fire truck through. Well, the, you know, these regulations sometimes help the architect. Like a client may say, why do I need a two-story arch? And I say, well, the local fire department requires, you know, that, <laughs> um, and, and the tower uh, has little bird net, uh, coat. It's called like a dove coat, like it has. You know, and they weren't going to, it was above the height limit, but then someone on the review commission up there said, oh, well, but we care about birds, right? So we'll let them do it. 
See, there's always a, a reason for an exemption, isn't there? Yeah, there has to be. <laughs> you just have, have to, to find it. Right, right. So yeah. you, carry the, you carry the outside in. What was the state of, this, this is amazing to me, what was the state of this property when, when, you, when you started it? Was it, was, it, was it up to code? Was it kind of a, I don't want to call it a refresh, but where were you in the state of, of this? I mean, there was nothing there. This is a new house, right? So, oh, it's a new build. Okay. It's a new yes, build. it's a new build. Okay. Totally new build. Um, and um, it's, but there were a few other houses on the land uh, that belonged to the family that originally owned it, um, including a train station. Um, and, and there were some really cool things too. But the, no, this is a new build. There's a lot of teak, there's a lot of cedar, um, and there are two sides of the house. One's all sort of woodsy, and then this is a separate stair which goes to other rooms. So one of the things I do when I'm designer larger houses is arrange them so that if you're just there, just the two of you or four of you, it doesn't feel like you're looking down a long bedroom hall that kind of kind of divide it up nicely. I I absolutely love this. And and I think the the greatest compliment that I could possibly offer you is that I I really couldn't tell that this was a new build. Um, I felt I felt like this had been there for quite some time, it, like it belonged there. Well, that is a compliment. <laughs> That's a compliment. So. Um, and by the way, if you're following along on the podcast, because we're gonna we're gonna turn this into a YouTube video as as well. But if you're just following along on the podcast, I'll link the notes to uh, to the website so you can look at these projects as well. Um, the French modern townhouse. Yeah. So this is a challenge because you have a building that's 19 feet wide, <clears throat> 19 four, I think, and you have five levels uh, above uh, one, two, three, four, five, and then a penthouse six, and then two below. So it's like a really skinny thing. So how do you make it feel like it's full of light and how do you make it feel like it flows? Um, so so we kept it, the front wall and everything inside is brand new. Well, I was gonna say, it's safe to say that this was not a new build. No, this is what a new build with, no, it is, it's like all they got was the front wall of the house. There was nothing okay. behind it. <laughs> okay. So. so with a challenge like that, uh, what did, how did you approach this knowing that you wanted to make it light, open and airy, but, but had those, you had some, some constraints obviously built in. Right, so lining up all the openings so that you can see back to front, see the light on either end, and having a stair that is soft and compact and brings light from above. So there's a skylight directly uh, <clears throat> above the stair that brings light down into that stair volume. Um, and, um, you know, those are, it's, it's, it's with New York towns that houses, it's all about the stair and how you keep it compact so that you can have the rooms have generous proportions. Um, and then the idea was to keep this part of it looking traditional like it might have been done in the 1920s. And then by the time you get to the top, it's kind of the modernist edition. I don't know uh, if you keep going, there's a room that has absolutely no moldings. <laughs> Before we get there, this, this stairwell is just artistic. It's fascinating to me. I could, I could sit and look at this image all day long. It's yeah. amazing. Stairs are the stairs are the greatest challenge, and when they're done right, the greatest reward. 
Isn't that interesting? You know, I, I'd never heard anyone express it that way before, but I believe that to be true. And it's, it's interesting too, because it, it seems like, it seems like the stairs, again, I, I'm not an architect, right? But it, it feels like in many cases, the stairs are always just sort of a last minute utilitarian, purely utilitarian addition. But they're really hard. The geometry is really hard. I mean, I don't believe in design rules, but when you're doing a curved stair, it's important to have no straight sections of the railing at all. Everything has to be curved. And you can't go all the way to the bottom and then suddenly have two straight steps. Like everything has to be, you kind of have to be maniacal about it. It's fascinating. And it is, it is just so, it, it's incredible and it's beautiful. Um, it's amazing. It really is. And then, um, and, like but, you mentioned. By the way, Vic, Victoria Hagen was the interior designer. Um, it's great to work with someone like that, obviously. Was this the first project you had collaborated on with her? No, we did a tiny uh, pool house for a client of hers in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, and we done helped her with a couple of other little things, but this was the first major one. Absolutely beautiful. And then you can see how it opens up into you know the upper the upper area, which is which is lighter, brighter, airy. It's a, right. it's completely different from right from the, the lower floors, but it blends, it matches. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't match, but it, it's, it's cohesive. Right. I mean, it, it, it flows. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another challenge with townhouses is that they sometimes put an addition on the back, which blocks, you know, some of the back wall. So um, you have to kind of deal with how to keep the flow going and keep it open and uh, coherent. So speaking of flow, um, we're in the kitchen. What floor is the kitchen on? It's on the ground floor. It's on the bottom. Okay. Yeah. So with regard to the kitchen itself, I, and again, my, my question is particularly to the, from an architect's perspective, because the kitchen is the heart of the home, right? That is, that is right. just, that is, it's the one place where you know everyone's got to go on a daily basis. How did you, in a, in a structure like this with the, with the constraints and the footprint, knowing that you've got so much up and so much down, how did you make this that place that wasn't Grand Central Station, but still fully functional? Um, because I, what I did, first of all, we lowered the floor level from the, the windows in the front are set by the Landmarks Commission, so you can't move them. But by the time you get to the house, I went with a higher ceiling back here. Um, and then I divided the kitchen kind of down the middle. So the cooking happens on one side and everything else happens on the other. I, I don't like kitchens where people have to cross the path of the cook. I'm the cook and I, I like to like have my space. Um, and then we, you know, we kept everything really light and bright and um, uh, you know, it's, but the ceiling height helps for sure. What you also did is you spaced out all of the, appliances and then everything is surrounding this this amazing this amazing island with the with with one of what two sinks um right. and again just it's the it's the detail uh love the detail because you've got two sinks but you've also got a pot filler over the stove which which means the the functionality 
it keeps you from having to cross. You're talking about crossing lines. Yeah. Um, fully functional. Absolutely love this. Um, and then, you know, you, you have this, this blend of light and dark and I just, I, I love how, how it all works together. I think, you know, you, is this a his and hers? Yeah. So her scenario? is very feminine and his is kind of woods, you know, wood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sorry, again, where is this? Uh, the house is on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's on off of Fifth Avenue. And it's it's interesting too because you you call this the French Modern Townhouse. This this really it could be anywhere, right? Um, mm -hmm. I love that you've showcased this kid's bedroom. Um, this is probably one of. So I, I'm pointing out a couple of things because I have always I have always subscribed to the to the belief that small spaces are my absolute favorite spaces because I feel like having so having had so many conversations and being such a fan of design and architecture, small spaces test a creative like nothing else. Big spaces are great. And I'm, and I'm not knocking, you know, the, the large space with a big budget, but you can, that's not a challenge per se. Yes. You, you know, being creative is still an artistic representation. You still have to be creative, but it's not a real test. Going big while being small, that's a test. And this child's bedroom, as I'm looking around, you have, you've made use of every inch and nothing's missing. Yeah, everything's built in. There are little lights, see the three little lights and there are lights on the other side. There's a reading light. There's grommets for, you know, eventually laptop, right? There's sort of, uh, it's very compact. It's very compact, but it doesn't feel cramped. Um, you, you, have, you have bunk beds, you have lighting in the, under the bottom bunk where, where the desk is. Um, the window carries the light through, but you've also got a, got a, a seat that is within the window, you know, and, and plenty of storage. I just, I love how it feels to me like everything was thought out and Thank nothing's you. missing. And that's a, that's a big ask in a small space. Yeah. So um, again, now which this, this feels like a, office slash playroom slash crafts crafts room slash it's a playroom like it has a it has a linoleum floor that you can spill paint on like there's no grout it's like sheet linoleum the walls are magnetic so they can use these little magnets to put their art up it's uh it's a playroom it's a make it messy room the walls are magnetic i mean it has magnetic in the panels behind the white glossy paint there's like a sheet of yeah it's steel so it's really, you don't have to use push pins. <laughs> I mean, it could That's, have been quirk, but it's cool because it's shiny, white, glossy. And, and then you go from that to a, a, an elegant and completely sophisticated seating room for the adults. Right, and this is definitely the point which I can come up with a story. It's a story, it's fiction. Someone did this house in 1920 and then their uncle came back from Paris, you know, in 1930 and he was, he'd studied with so-and-so and he wanted his own little lair on the top. So he built this modernist thing at the top, you know, it's not 
these same architectures downstairs, but the French doors have that proportion and the Kermon bolts are French hardware. And so it does have that a little bit of a connection to the rest of the house. So for me, the obvious question, uh, and then we can move on to, a, to another project is you have a baby grand sitting in this room and I'm curious how it got there. I mean, physically how that, how it physically got oh, there. Gee, uh, listen, we have, <laughs> this is nothing. I, I just, I had to get a, a, a seven foot solid marble tub that weighed 3,200 pounds into a, into a penthouse two blocks from here. In December, we had to deliver a 12 foot high clock that weighed 3,800 pounds into the new train station on 34th street. <laughs> so do you ever film yourself doing this? Uh, I have, we, we have a film of the clock being raised up. <laughs> I would love to see that. I, I think that, that a ton of, you know, again, that is a, that is an artistic representation of a fully utilitarian idea is, is the, the manner in which you get it up there. Cause it's not easy. No, it's not easy. No. Um, jumping from that over to this New England house. Yeah. Um, this was not a new build. This is, new build. This is, is new build. a new build. So this was a not very wonderful landmark house that belonged to Edwin Land, who invented the Polaroid camera. But the house was really not great. But it was protected. They bought it. And their architect said, let's store all the historic paneling in the living room. And let's leave heaters on all the time to keep it stable. They burned down the whole thing to the ground. The neighbor, I mean, so, so let's say <laughs> it didn't continue with that architect. <laughs> and I shouldn't laugh. And so I got to build a new house. Okay. But that is, it is kind of funny. It's a little bit. And it's a bit, honestly, it is a better, it's a better house than, than what burned down. It's my third burn down. I, I hope I don't get a reputation with the insurance company. <laughs> What is, how much of the original idea did you bring back, you know, the columns, the, the, it, it, the architecture? Now, this is much more delicate architecture, federal. It has much more going on. The, the, the last one, the one that preceded it was sort of Victorian and had been, had very little special detail. It was um, kind of clunky and pompous, you know, it looked like, it, this had nothing to do with what we did do is we centered this side of the house on a beautiful curved abstract garden by the garden designer Fletcher Steele that he he done and so we connected it with the land in a way that the, the the last house hadn't been and then we stuck all the cars under the house and so we reclaimed the lawn it used to have paving everywhere so the lawn that that we're looking at in front of this house used to was was paved yeah. yes what, and, in that area, there were that people pull up their cars and said, so we put it, we tucked a ramp that slips below the terrace and you can fit six cars down there. So no cars, cut out, little driveway, just. <laughs> that is incredibly creative. You know what I'm also noticing about this too is this, this is not a, this is not a huge house. It's much bigger than it looks. It's six bedrooms. It um, is, but but it's I, that. I mean, the point was to make it feel approachable and not overwhelming. And it does. It feels regal yet approachable. And then, as you go inside, you have another absolutely 
exquisite staircase. Thank you. What's interesting to me is this feels to me way more artistic than the one that we saw before. There's, there's this reverse element to it where you, you've got the stairs above and then you could be coming back upside down the, right. the exact same way. I mean, it, just the, the manner in which this was designed, it, it lacks um, what you would think as natural support. Um, right. This it is a non, this structure. is a, sorry. And, and, and this is, I mean, the structuring it is hard. And by the way, these, the, these projects look different and different parts of them look different because I have different designers in my office. The principal designer is a man named Gregory Goldmartin, his partner. And he's worked with me for 34 years. And this is a different designer. So there people, I want people who work for me to bring ideas to the table. I don't pretend that this is a firm where every idea comes from my head, right? Because everyone's, we have really creative people. We've had uh, collaborations for decades, so. And I get that. I think, you know, what, you know, my point here is this feels like such a, such a modern element to a traditional home and and it's admirable that these new ideas are are allowed to be included not allowed i think that's the wrong word but but embraced is probably a, a better mm-hmm. word um and again just it's it's exquisite and it's it's i don't know gentle isn't the isn't the right word but it, it's it's all it's sweeping um i love the way it looks it looks it looks comfortable it looks it just it looks like art um it's amazing and and incredibly beautiful and this too this next image is something that i really wanted to ask you about because the presentation so this is a mirrored wall as you enter from underneath the stairs. You, you walked in the front door and before you entered the house, you're in an entirely mirrored room. The moldings are mirrored, the door casings, the cornice, it's all cast glass. So you're in a glass room. <laughs> Where did that idea come from? I mean, this is something we see in Dorothy Draper and you see it in, you know, interior designs in the 1930s using cast glass mirror. Um, but I thought it was interesting to come from this very sort of stodgy street near Harvard and Cambridge, Massachusetts, and walk into this sort of glamorous, you know, thing of it from the 1930s. Yeah, and I, I think my, my point is, is that you don't see this used anymore. I, I haven't seen this used in a, in a modern application before. Maybe it is, um, but it's certainly not common, especially with the glass molding, um, just the, the entire room is glass. It's amazing. It's fun. Hard to photograph. <laughs> I bet it was. I bet it was. And it's a it's a beautiful home. Thank you. And then I'm looking for um, the last one that I wanted to touch on. I think was the um, the Fifth Avenue Maisonette. Uh, we had so much fun with this. The client was just so much so great. He was uh, one of the first people in the sort of luxury hotel resort business who thought of, you know, making hotels more comfortable and bigger bath, just all the things. His name is Bob Burns. He's in his mid eighties now, and he lived in Hong Kong. He did 
some of the great hotels in Hong Kong, all over the world. So he was, a, we learned a lot from him. <laughs> I, I, I bet. Um, what was the origin of this project? Where did, where was it when you, when you started? It was and completely original with little hallways. And so it was a very back of the house, front of the house situation where there was a hallway to get your staff back through the pantry to the kitchen. Everything was buried. You couldn't see through from room to room. It's right on fifth Avenue. So you can walk out. It has a door that goes out to, you can walk your dog without, you know, going out into the elevator. Um, and so um, it's all about opening it up. And materials, color palette. Um, oh, and, so we bought, and we bought the art for him. And we even made a little place for his turntable because he had a great jazz LP collection. And so it's all fitted out for him and his wife. That is fantastic. Yeah. And again, it is the level of comfort. It's elegant, but comfortable. Thank and you. it feels like it feels like that is a through line in the work that the firm produces. Thank you. Yeah, the room looks simple, but when you go into it, you have a, a sensation because the walls are leather and the leather wraps up onto the molding. And so it has a very kind of it's, it's almost like um, you feel the softness of the, of, the, of the room. Tell me about using leather on the walls. Um, is, is that something, I mean, obviously you're using it. Was that a request? Was that something that you guys came, brought to the table? Is that something that you use often? And I'm, and I'm looking at this one image with, you know, this, this mirrored reflection off again, off the walls. It's, it's modern yet it's, it's, it's a throwback and it feels incredibly comfortable. Yeah, no, they, they they really enjoy this room. It's so, yeah, the leather on the walls is something that I've always been fascinated with. Uh, there's a McKinmeaden White House up. This is architectural history showing you that these people were really crazy and imaginative. They did a whole room in leather on a house on 79th and 5th in 1908. And even the moldings, instead of having moldings, it has little uh, brads like upholstery uh, tacks describing all the patterns, the door frame, like the, everything in the room is leather. So we've done rooms that are leather tile, which is the sort of floor tile. And we put it on the walls. Uh, we've done rooms that are panels of leather. I, I, it just is a wonderful material. Embossed you, leather, too. You know, my first experience with, with leather, as you're describing it, was a couple of years ago. Um, the La Cienega Design Quarter does their annual Legends event. And Patrick Sutton, a designer out of Chicago, did a room, a window, did a room, um, with blue patent leather on all three on all three walls and it was just it was amazing it was the first time i saw it and i actually walked in and i'm 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 touching the walls just it was just something that was amazing to look at and and feel it was it was almost like it was water and your hand would go right through it and i do i tend to do very thick embossed leather in elevators and also like kitchen doors that get pushed a lot it's a very hardy material. Like it's like saddle, saddle leather. And, and I would also imagine too, that if you're, if you're doing this on a door uh, over time, you're, you're going to get a patina, you're going to get a certain worn areas, which just add to the, add to the look of it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully. Done. Oh, wanted to go back. Um, is this a reflection? Is, is this a, an odd angle or is the, is the roof reflective? 
Uh, it's it's very very glossy. The, the ceiling, the is, ceiling is glossing. High gloss, high gloss. Um, and, and that mantelpiece is another mantelpiece we designed. It's it's glass, cast glass with gold back. Where is that manufactured? Um, in New York City. It is, okay. Absolutely beautiful and it's a lot to take in. Okay, so look, here we are again in a, in a relatively um, small area, small space. The, the bar is exquisitely appointed and is the the image on the right is that the kitchen that's the kitchen that had been a pantry and a kitchen it's as so many appliances but i disguised them all in this uh, fiddleback sycamore um, and then we design our range hoods we have these wrenches made of metal with glass panels so that they become kind of a luminous you know light when you're especially if you're eating in a kitchen i like to use that as a kind of a luminous um, source it's fantastic. So every, uh, all the appliances are paneled. So we're looking at them. You just don't notice them. We just wanted to be very calm. Beautifully done. Um, and, and what's interesting again is you have, you have this juxtaposition of a cozy and dark, um, yet the hallway on the other side is, is not, is not large, but it doesn't feel small because of the way that you've opened it up vertically uh, and the color palette. Right. It's a, it's a tiny, it's a, it's a building that's very narrow. The, the whole building is 27 feet wide. And so every apartment is, the plan is sort of the same. So it's fun to see what other designers have done. Actually, Valentino lives upstairs, believe it or not. Really? And yeah. And so, and his apartment is so layered. It's like full on crazy Peter Marino, you know, Russian Regency and everything. <laughs> it's amazing. So here we are in the bath. Um, will, will you do me a favor and just sort of walk me through the materials used here? Because that, that sink, that wall, the, the glass cabinet, I mean, just all of it is amazing. Yeah, so that that uh, bathroom on the left is all uh, calicata stone with a waterfall around uh, the vanity, um, and um, that was for uh, the client who um, you know does hotels. So he had a lot of ideas about storage. We learned a lot from him. The one on the right is pink marble with white marble inlay panels, and and you know then mirrors. So it it confuses some people. They think it might actually be a really well-preserved bathroom from 1935, which is kind of crazy. Um, it, it, and that's her bathroom. And it, the light is really, the, the, the pink stone really does reflect the light nicely. So I have a relatively pedestrian question for you. Um, regarding the stone, um, the marble and the slabs, it's such a challenge to match veining in this way. Um, how do you shop for stone? How do you shop for marble? How do you shop for slabs? How do you, how do you envision? Because there's, there's a certain amount of artistry, really, seriously, that goes into, um, you know, because this is not just one slab. So, you know, you're looking at, at different veining patterns and, and matching slabs for what you know is going to be a fully marbled room. How, how do you approach that? I mean, there's no substitute for going to the marble yard. Um, I've even had been able to do to go to Carrera for a couple of projects. That's really fun. But going to the marble yard in Brooklyn or Queens, 
looking at the slabs and then making sure that um, that you get a really good high res photograph of every slab. And then um, the, we put it into our system. And so we then digitally uh, match them and move them around. And then we can blank out and mark out the actual slabs to match the, um, it, it's sort of part of the shop drawing process is actual slab layout and trimming. And then I imagine too, that the relationship with your fabricator is incredibly important. I know, I, I, they do such beautiful work, but on one product, I still told the client, I better go back to Italy to make sure that it all looks good before they pack it up. Because <laughs> I said, if it See? arrives in Ohio and it's not right, it's not going back. And so he agreed, of course, I went, had a couple of great dinners, looked at it, it was all perfect. I didn't need to go. <laughs> yeah, but you did. You, you definitely did. I um, <clears throat> want to wrap this up with something that we were talking about before, and you had mentioned that you, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, you celebrate different ideas within, within the firm. And to me, that seems to be really one of the biggest challenges at, at a firm once you get above a certain size is you bring people in and you're gonna get new ideas you have a firm with a reputation and there's, there's always a struggle. Um, what's new, what's too new? How do, I, how do I embrace new ideas without changing the aesthetic or the ethos of the firm? That's a big challenge and that, that falls on you. What's, what's, your, what's your attitude towards this? What's your philosophy as it relates to that? How do you, how do you encourage innovation and creativity without going back to, you know, what New York and Miami were in the 1990s coming out of an overly expressive 1980s. I think it's by just traveling, observing architecture, looking at, but we have almost 10,000 books by digging, whatever your idea is, wherever it came from, it came from somewhere, look deeper and deeper and deeper into the subject and try to understand how that, how someone made that kind of building and what their challenges were if you really are thoughtful about it, it won't come off as a you know, flavor of the moment design idea. And what, whatever you do, I think when you come for younger people, when they come to a firm, don't feel insecure, like you have to sort of cannibalize the best projects that have been published before by that firm. That's sort of a trap we, you could easily fall into, right? Say, everyone loves that. So let's do another one of those. Well, you know, that's not gonna work. It never does work. Because once you, any time you actually copy anything, it's never going to feel like it has any life force at all. It's sort of sort of stillborn, you know. It's, it's that it, it's it's maintaining authenticity and still trying new things. And I think that that's the with design, it's one thing, but with architecture, it's 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 often something completely different. And again, I think it goes back to the fact that you're not designing for five, 10, 15, 25, or 30 years, you know, you call 50 years new. And so you're you're really looking at something that's gonna that's gonna have the stand the, the test of time for you know a hundred years plus, you know, it that makes that makes you almost architect as futurist. Well, I mean, we don't, we, we also have the advantage of building at a time when our houses are so much better than anyone was building like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, because the construction is just so much better. The insulation, the performance, the environmental aspect, it's, 
I mean, people, it's, it's, those really were teardowns, unfortunately. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, or burn downs in some cases. <laughs> I, I, I don't tell anyone. <laughs> well, I think you just four. did. <laughs> I think I've done four. Oh my God. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, you could look at it that way or you could say, Hey, it's something we specialize in. Yeah, but I always tell people like build, if you're looking in the country, try to find a place where there's a really nasty asbestos ranch house because in other words, build, you know, build where you can tear something down so that you're improving the environment. That's what we did here. Like we cleaned up the oil, we cleaned up the asbestos, but we put the house where a house was because, and there was a house here before. So normally the land, the trees are bigger. The land is already accommodated to a house. I'm not talking about a suburbia because it's not really an issue there, but I don't like to build new houses in agricultural fields. It always feels wrong. And I don't like people cutting way up, you know, knocking down a lot of old trees. Like I feel like there's a place where the house should be historically, and it probably should be there. I love that. I love that. And again, it speaks to the authenticity of it. Um, Peter, thank you for the time today. Thank you for the journey. This was, this was a lot of fun and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Peter. Not much makes me happier than deep dives like this. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for presenting Convo by Design. Thank you, Thermosel, Article, York Wall Coverings, and Franz Wigner for your partnership. You are remarkable partners and amazing allies for the trade. And thank you for listening. Remember why you do what you do and that the business of design is about making better the lives of those we serve. Right? Until next week, be well and take today first.